Before we get started, I want to let you know about a couple of upcoming programs. On May 6th in Milwaukee, we have In the Eye of the Storm, Staying Centered in a Personal and Collective Crisis with Ashok Beatty, MD, and Robert B.J. Jakala, Ph.D., and five CEs are available for that course. And again, that's in Milwaukee. We also have an event in Chicago on May 19th, Opening the Close Heart, a new look at Jungian depth psychology in light of trauma, affect theory, and defense with Donald Kalshed. It'll be a combined like supper and lecture event at the Union League Club, which is just next door to the Institute. Um, it's a member-only event, so you just need to either be a member already or become a member to register, and two CEs are available. More information about that event is available on the website. Also, we now have two self-study CE courses. So this is a new function that we added to the website. We have self-study CE courses where you listen to a recording um, or watch a video and uh, take a short quiz on the website and you get CEs that way. Uh, the two courses we have available right now are Structure and Dynamics of the Psyche with Gus Swick. And then the new one is Approaching the Unconscious with Ken James. So for more information about those, uh, just visit our website. Thanks. Welcome to the Jungian Theology Podcast from the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. Technology and the Self, Part 2. Finding Ourselves in a Digital Culture with Elizabeth Nelson. Elizabeth Nelson, Ph.D., has served on the faculty of Pacifica Graduate Institute since 2003. Dr. Nelson's own research interests have long been addressed to the issues of gender, shadow, and power with a particular devotion to dangerous women in fiction and fact. She has published several papers and chapters in edited collections and regularly presents at scholarly conferences around the world. Dr. Nelson's books include Psyche's Knife, Archetypal Explorations of Love and Power, and The Art of Inquiry, A Depth Psychological Perspective, co-authored with Joseph Coppin, which is now in its third edition. She has been a professional writer and editor for more than 30 years, coaching aspiring authors across a variety of genres and styles through her consultancy, Winged Feet. She joins Patricia Martin for a lively conversation about the value of Jungian thought in our tech-centric times. And now let's jump right in. Hi, this is Patricia Martin, and I'll be your host today for Young in the World. And with me today is Elizabeth Nelson. Elizabeth is a professor at Pacifica Institute where she draws on her decades of experience in IT to teach courses that explain the impact of digital life on self and soul. Her research interests include personal and cultural expressions of the shadow, gender, and power. She has a particular devotion to dangerous women in text, film, and life. <laughs> Elizabeth is the author of two books, The Art of Inquiry, co-authored with Joseph Coppin, 
Her second book is Psyche's Knife, The Archetypal Explorations of Love and Power. She has been an editor and a writer for 30 years, and she has many essays and articles out there about Jung and the interface between the psyche and technology. And we are thrilled to have you here with us today, Elizabeth Nelson. Thank you so much, Patricia. I'm very happy to be here. Well, I have to tell you, I'm, I admire your balanced view of technology. You are neutral about it, as was Carl Jung, in that, um, you know, he was writing about it before it was even cresting the hill. And, uh, and he took a neutral stance as well, in, in, in so much as to say, let's see where this goes. Let's see where humanity takes it. And that's where I'd kind of like to pick up with my first question is to ask you, you know, there's less and less boundary every day between what it means to be human and, and, and what is machine driven. And certainly we have fallen in love with our devices, our laptops, our phones. I don't know anyone who can live without them. Uh, And so I'm curious to know at the root of this, why you think, despite any kind of technology programming, why are we so seduced by technology? Oh, well, there are at least a couple of good answers to that question. Um, I think partly we're seduced by convenience. Um, There's no question that the designers of uh, the kind of technology that I focus on, which is mobile digital technology, which is pervasive for just about everybody in the first world, at least. uh, There's there's no doubt that the designers uh, are very clever about making things that make our lives easier. Uh, And they do. Um, You know, one of Jung's warnings about technology, and he he was not neutral about this at all, is that um, new advances often create a much speedier life um, and they are deceptive sweetenings. I think that's his phrase. So he was concerned about the pace of modern life and of course, what we've seen in the last, you know, 60, 50, 60 years since he said that uh, is that modern life has only gotten faster so the devices help us manage this, this hectic life that most of us live. That's certainly oh, one answer. Yeah, no, I, I, and I, I really appreciate you bringing up this business of the speeding up of life. And mm-hmm. I, I guess I'm wondering, is it your thought that what Carl Jung was trying to say is that the speed of life might be at the expense of inner work and, and oh, yeah. personal reflection, that kind of depth? work that is required by Jungians to really kind of come into yourself and become whole. I, you know, the term we use is Jung's term individuation. Do you, do you think that was the concern? Oh, I, I definitely think so. Um, you know, one of the most um, potent images from memory streams, reflections is late in that book where he talks about how soul is a buried treasure in the field. And he, he feels like he's failed in his task to remind people of the soul. Well, if you think about it uh, for just even a moment, it takes a while. It takes slowness. It takes observation. It takes attention 
to notice that there might even be a treasure there, let alone to dig it up. So within that one very rich image, he gives us an idea of just how slow the work of the soul is. Um, and, you know, others, of course, have said this as well. Um, Hillman says in, in search that attention is the cardinal psychological virtue. Um, we can't we can't do anything psychologically or psychological without first paying attention. Um, Thomas More talks about how soul work is slow work. So there seems to be a general consensus that the pace of soul and the pace of soul work is antithetical to the, the haste of our technologically driven life. I wonder sometimes that if technology is actually beginning to consume uh, the bandwidth of attention and awareness that might otherwise go into consciousness. Meaning, is does technology eventually have the power to separate us from connection to our, the soul? Well, yes. <laughs> yes, it certainly <laughs> the does. The short answer is yes, right? The short, the short answer is yes. Um, you know, one of the more powerful, fairly recent documentaries that I highly recommend is called The Social Dilemma. Right. And it's a series of interviews with uh, some of the technocrats from the Silicon Valley who are, you know, heads of some of the largest companies, uh, Google, Facebook, et cetera. And one of the things that they make clear is that is that we are the product. In other words, um, what what Google is is selling to its advertisers is our attention, mm-hmm. our eyeballs. Um, so there's no question that that our attention has been commodified. And if it's been commodified, you know that a company that's uh, looking at the profit margin is going to do everything it possibly can to keep your attention where it wants. So when you're talking with your students or with some of the people that you counsel, are you advising them to guard their uh, attention so as to protect their consciousness? I do. Um, and in fact, that's that's one of the subject that's, subjects that comes up in the class that I teach uh, on technology. And it's not so much a matter of, um, I don't, we don't Im- immediately go to a defensive position, but um, I encourage students to go to a place of consciousness, um, to become aware of their habits with mobile digital technology, start there, awareness. And then from there, ask themselves, how does this technology enhance my life? Mm-hmm. And how does it uh, detract from my life so that they have the power of choice? Interesting. I was fascinated to also read about your experiments with your students. So you you put them on a 72-hour tech diet, right? Like it's a... <laughs> Yes. Right. It's it's sort of yes. like the outward bound program of like no tech. And but yes. but it's more than just no tech. There's there's a whole 
a bunch of things that they can't do anymore. I please talk mm-hmm. about that. And, and then my follow-up question sure. is like, what have you learned? But what let's start with how it works. Okay. So how it works is it is a 72 hour fast. I call it a digital fast, but it's not necessarily that. Um, I have to tell you that this is the the assignment um, that is most hateful to my students. Um, (laughs) And I've heard not a few of them sort of swear under their breath that they even have to do this. Um, So let me give you just a little bit. Um, So it's 72 72 consecutive hours, okay, like three solid days. And they have a choice between um, not using, attempting, attempting, not to use any technology at all. The second option is to use technology, but only to use one device at a time or one program at a time, one app at a time. Mm -hmm. Um, The third fast, which doesn't have anything to do with technology, but is surprisingly difficult, is to do only one thing at a time. So, it's, uh, it's a choice that they have. Um, very few people are able to give up technology entirely. What they have learned is that technology, mobile digital technology is so interfused in their life that they can't manage their, their clinical practice without it. Um, they can't manage their calendars without it. They can't go for a workout at the gym without it because remember, you know, any of the cardio equipment at a gym, for instance, is is using all kinds of circuitry. It, you know, it too is digital. Yeah. Um, some of them even say, but I can't drive my car. And I realize that's true. You know, cars these days are about 20 computers loaded into a chassis. Right. That's what a car is. So it's uh, it's a remarkable assignment. Um, some of the students discover that they have to prepare for it for days to even begin the fast. Um, they have to let their clients know. They have to let their friends know. They have to let their family know. I'm, I'm not going to be available for text or email or I'm not going to be posting on social media. Um, it's quite uh, it's quite a confrontation. Oh, I can imagine. And now, you know, hearing about this, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, think about all the people you would have to negotiate with to say, listen, you know, I'm going to be non-responsive for quite a while. How habitual it is for us to send, you know, kind of micro messages all day long to the people in our inner circles. So... What are you? What have you learned uh, from from watching people go through this? Do, have you arrived at any conclusions? Well, I, I, I certainly have. So I started teaching this course in 2014. So that's eight years ago, um, and I noticed that the resistance to the idea of the digital fast um, was much less in the early years, 2014, 2015. The resistance has grown considerably stronger over the last few years, where uh, students will act actively declare that they cannot live without their technology. They simply can't. On the other hand, what many of them report is a new sense of peacefulness, mm. uh, a new sense of um, eco-awareness, 
a sense of being a, a, a person, an embodied person in the world, on the earth. Um, for many people report little things like food tastes better. Um, instead of going to the gym, they go for a walk in the neighborhood and they notice more things. Um, instead of um, listening to music or scrolling through social media as a distraction while they're in line someplace, grocery store, post office, wherever that is, they're paying attention to the people in line with them and what else is happening. So there's a quality of attention that, that profoundly changes for them when they are in the middle of this fast. So all those things you just described, I, I, you know, I can picture someone standing in line and I mean, that, I had to ship a package the other day and there everybody was standing in line, scrolling their phones. And, uh, I, it's just what we do. Mm -hmm. And this preoccupation with staying engaged somehow with the device is, mm -hmm. you know, some people say, well, it's just lazy or, but, but the reality is we're doing it. And so we're not, what, what you're seeing to be learning is that the things that really do make us human. So paying attention, observation, you know, a kind of assessing our surroundings um, at being a sentient being is fogged by an over-reliance on technologies. Do I have that right? You, you absolutely have that right. And I would say more than, than, than sentience, it's, it's, being, it's being an embodied being on the earth with everything that that means, being our creaturely self, our, our animal self. We're, we're alienated from our animal existence. Um, but it's more than just a, a habit. For many people, it has risen to the level of addiction. Um, and many of my students report that they, that they find themselves sort of, you know, unconsciously reaching for their, for their smartphone, for instance, uh, to, as a self-soothing uh, gesture. Mm -hmm. um, it's a way of avoiding some of their deeper feelings that might arise while they're at the post office in line waiting to mail a package. Um, and they're, they're very, the, the, the end result of this experience for the students is, first of all, incredible relief that they can use their devices again. They're so <laughs> happy that the fast is over. Um, understandably so. Um, and then new awareness about how using sort of an addiction to devices, mobile digital devices, is, is like placing a set of blinders, not over just their eyes, but over their in, entire bodies. Oh, wow. So there's a somatic Absolutely. function of being human that is also suppressed. Absolutely. Through an overuse of personal technologies. Wow. Yes. With, without question. Wow. Without question. So yeah. if you take the long view of this, being a, a Jungian, how, how do you see people who do want to accomplish the work of the internal life and, you know, 
um, I, I believe that Carl Jung thought that our ability to reflect was actually an instinct. So, you know, we want to do this, but we're preventing ourselves. We're thwarting ourselves from doing this. What, what's your long view of this? Is this just going to keep on going faster and faster and humans are going to have no say in this or what's your well, I mean, I suppose that there are, you know, a couple of potential scenarios. If you listen to somebody like Ray Kurzweil, Mm -hmm. who is a a very well-known futurist, um, he embraces the idea of the post-human, the the 21st century cyborg, um, with a great deal of enthusiasm. He does see that as the next step in our evolution. You know, the idea that, um, you know, that we can't, eventually dispense with the body and become for all intents and purposes, immortal. Um, That is a terrifying thought to me uh, for all (laughs) kinds of reasons. Um, Wait, 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 wait. No, hang on. That was so juicy. I have to know. Why is that so terrifying? Well, all I have to do is think back to what the Greeks knew about, about getting close to the gods and what happened to any human being that, uh, you know, presume to even look at a god, let alone become a god, right? We have the story of Semele and Zeus. You know, he offered to, to, to grant her any wish that she wanted. And she said, what I want is to really see you, you know, in all of your divinity. And because he had promised, he had to keep his promise. And so what happens? He shows himself to her and she's, you know, instantaneously burnt to a crisp, oh. right? So, so the right. gulf between human and divine is something that's supposed to be maintained. And mm-hmm. Kurzweil's idea that we can somehow become immortal, you know, cross that divide, um, it's just terrifying. Well, we have the technology. We'll get there. But should we get there is really what you're asking. But I'm fascinated yes. also with this idea of you raising mythology, because uh, my understanding for Jung and, you know, I'm kind of um, tapping into Murray Stein here about pursuing folklore and mythology is that it was kind of a, a, a shared need in the collective unconscious. So we projected those stories because we needed them to survive. They, there are lessons in those stories that are useful to us. Um, as a race, as a, as a people. And I just wonder if that is, if, if that is so, then is not the internet and its vastness, it's it, people now refer to it as a digital culture. Is it not a projection of the unconscious of the collective unconscious? Oh, well, I, I, th- I think, I think you could see it that way. Certainly. Um, and, and the word that I like to use, the phrase that I like to use when I think about it as a projection is the, in a little bit of antiquated term, the World Wide Web. Oh, yeah. So, so that immediately presents an image of the world um, connected uh, in, in something vast and, and whole. And also, if you think about spider web, you know, webs are, are, are very, very sensitive. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, it's the way the spider extends her 
peripheral awareness um, to an area that's much larger than her small body. Mm-hmm. So if we think about the World Wide Web as this sensitive medium in which all of us are, are profoundly connected, sending and receiving messages to each other all of the time at, at, at a magical speed, right. um, I think you could see that there is the possibility, at least in that image, of, of a projection of something that um, is at least... Uh, a, a fantasy or, or a dream of humanity. Um, it's also humanity's nightmare, as we have seen. Yeah, and that, that leads me to some questions about shadow. Mm. Because I think you, you're the perfect expert. You, you have a background in IT. You're a professor at the Pacifica Institute, um, which teaches Jungian theory, among others. And you are talking about and looking at the culture through the lens of the shadow. Like what, what, how are we talking about shadow? What are we suppressing in the shadow? What are we releasing in the shadow? Tell me what you, as you look at the, 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 let's go back to your, your worldwide web use. What do what are you finding there when you look at shadow? Oh, Gosh, another small question. <laughs> I know. Well, I, you know what, Elizabeth Nelson, I brought you on because I figured I'll just boil the whole ocean <laughs> because I think you can do it. <laughs> but, but anyway, we can down chunk it if you want. <laughs> no, I think it's, it's such a great question. Um, certainly. Um, so let me let me answer the question about the shadow of technology first, rather than specifically the shadow of the World Wide Web or the Internet. Okay, I think one of the things that has um, haunted us as a as a human race um, for a very long time is just because we can do something, should we? Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the one of the uh, uh, sort of prophetic texts that I'd love to have my students read um, is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, uh, written 200 years ago. I've been fortunate I've been able to teach Frankenstein uh, to graduates and undergraduates for about 20 years. But there's one point at which Victor Frankenstein, uh, who has you know tremendous vision of what he wants to do, he wants to create a race of beings will bless him as their as their god if you will um, he doesn't think for a moment about the 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 life of what he's creating after its birth um, so there is at the moment that the creature opens its eyes um, he victor is terrified of what he's created and he he runs away so right there, we've got an attachment wound, a very severe attachment wound that plays itself out over the course of that story. But there's another moment that I think is even more important in that story that serves as an example of shadow and a, and a warning to technologists, which is that Victor Frankenstein is so in love with his power to create, his ability to create, um, that he works again, at, at this incredible speed. Again, we come back to the theme of haste. 
And what he says in the first uh, volume of that story is that he had too little time to make a being that was average human size. So average size in 1818 would have been a man about five and a half feet tall, five, five, right? Instead, he's in such a hurry that he creates a creature of gigantic stature, eight, almost eight feet tall is, is what we're led to believe. Rather than pausing and thinking, how can an eight foot tall creature be accepted into the human community? Oh, yeah. He doesn't think that. He doesn't think ahead about the life of the creature. It's a failure of imagination. And so how I see that as the shadow, as it's playing itself out as the shadow of technologists is, is again, we can create these amazing things, but let's think about the life that they will lead and the lives that they will change after their birth. Interesting. Those are really big questions. And, 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 mm. and I think um, if, if I could just riff on this for a second, because, mm -hmm. you know, coming up as I did in the early days of the internet, I, you know, there was absolute euphoria about it, that this was really going to change the world. And it did. But I think there was a great deal of optimism that this was going to democratize people and this the, people were laying all sorts of values on it um, that were really a, an outcropping I think of people's despair that they had so little control in their lives you know I mean we're also seeing like the rise of young people studying sto stoicism for the same reason that that we now live in a world that we have to endure not change because we can't change it you know these are all, pretty dark ideas, you know, that would fall into shadow, I suppose. But, but now we see that, in fact, it became a gated community and it became heavily commoditized. And, oh, my gosh, then we see a man like, uh, you know, uh, Leon Musk, uh, Elon Musk say, yeah, I'm, I'm just buying Twitter. And <laughs> that that was sort of the crescendo that deal hasn't culminated but but it was a crescendo moment of saying this is what the world wide web has become it's become another marketplace period is do you have yeah, hope for right. it to, to 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 develop as a culture or do you think it's just going to continue to be you know a marketing scheme and a marketplace and and a, and a place where we transact well, I think it's always going to be a marketing scheme. I mean, I think the, the commodification of the internet is 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 well underway. I don't think that's going to stop anytime soon. Um, on the other hand, I think we need to uh, I think we need to look at, at at what are the positive things that the internet and the mobile digital devices that make it useful have given us, mm -hmm. and that's where. Um, you know, it's very easy uh, to fall into uh, a polarization um, a, around the issue of technology. You're either a technophiliac, you love technology, or you're a technophobe, you, you fear it, you hate it. And I think it's important to, to stay in the gray area, to, to look at what are the things that it offers. Um, so, for example, 
during the pandemic, I was able to continue teaching graduate students for 27 months using Zoom. Now, the Zoom classroom, I will admit, is, is wretched in many respects compared to uh, you know, the live classroom, which I love. But we were able to continue uh, as, a, as an institute, we were able to continue working with our students, or our students were able to complete their degrees. So there's something quite magical about this technology that, that enables community, um, that makes it possible to speak to somebody, you know, 5,000 miles away, 10,000 miles away, as though, you know, we're sharing uh, an, an office. Right. Um, yeah, there's a certain beauty to that as well. Absolutely. I, absolutely. I, and I, as I a also, researcher, oh, oh my goodness, the internet is incredible. It, it's also magic for a researcher. It's magic. Well, I think about this conversation we're having right now, Elizabeth, yeah. you've been on my radar screen for quite a while now. And I, you know, this is, this is magic right here that we're having this conversation. You're out in California and I'm out in the great lakes area. And here we are. And here we are. Here we yeah. are. And I, I also want to talk a little bit about persona yes. because, you know, the idea that Jung had about persona is that, right. It's our interface between the self and the society. It helps us adapt and we're now seeing the use of the persona in ways we've never seen it before. So it's writ large. We're on multiple platforms. Most of us we're putting out, you know, a variety. There are multiple selves <laughs> that we're, we have a wardrobe of selves. And how do you, how do you think about that? I think about it in a couple of ways. Um, First of all, um, it's, I think it's quite human to have multiple selves. Um, you know, some of us have larger wardrobes than others, um, to, to borrow your metaphor. Um, but, but the persona is, is a, a way of adapting to social circumstances in a way that, that's truly helpful. Um, so, for example, um, you know, what I wear um, when I'm going on a long bicycle ride is not what I wear when I'm teaching my graduate students, right? Those are two different kinds of costumes, and I bring two different selves to it. What technology, particularly social media, has allowed us to do is to create multiple versions of ourselves, multiple personae. And uh, on, on the one hand, that can lead to a fracturing of the sense of self. In other words, it could be, um, it could be, can be kind of disintegrating, if, if you will. Um, somebody could also use uh, their various personae uh, for deceptive purposes, you know, deliberately um, creating a version of themselves that they know um, will get them something. Oh, online um, dating. Perfect example. Online dating is an outstanding example. Yes. Um, on the other hand, crafting a, an online dating profile. I mean, if you really were to take it as a, as a thoughtful exercise of, of, of describing yourself to a potential love interest, um, it can be a very soulful activity. 
you really have to think carefully about, okay, who am I? Who am I? What am I looking for? Um, what would somebody find interesting about me? So it it can be, again, it can serve this for, uh, it could be a form of deception, but it could be a form of radical honesty as well. The other thing that I like to think about is two, two other ways of, of looking at it. Um, so the shadow of, of persona Personae and, and social media is the idea that we are supposed to create a curated life, that it has to look a certain way. We have to look a certain way um, for popularity, social acceptance, you know, et, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be not only coercive, but, but honestly, it can be deadly because it can be shaming. Mm-hmm. Um, so we see, especially among young people, um, adolescents who are at a stage when they're exploring all kinds of identity issues, um, if they feel intense pressure to be a certain way and they're not that way, um, it, it can create you know, all kinds of agony, personal agony for them. On the other hand, Playing with multiple persona via via social media might be a way for them to experiment, um, like trying on different costumes. You know, let's let's see what what is fitting, what fits, what feels fun or comfortable or or real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know what? I've been fascinated with this for about a decade now, and that's mm. very consistent with what I'm finding is that the people who are using it consciously are able to explore. It's almost like you can prototype a self. Um, and people who are using it unconsciously are, are feeling more fractured. If I, you know, and, and I'm painting a broad brush here, but th- those are the two buckets I think it falls into. And I'm wondering, when you teach Carl Jung, to young people, whether they be graduate students or undergraduate students, where are you finding the sweet spots of his relevance? Well, the students really get the concept of the shadow. Do they? And they really understand persona without question. Um, I'm thinking particularly, you know, undergraduate age students, you know, 18 to 25. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very, they also understand um, how cultures, entire cultures have a persona that can be coercive. Um, so they understand at the, at the, these, the idea of shadow and persona at a, at a cultural level, mm-hmm. at a political cultural level, which I think is fascinating. Um, The particular group of undergraduates, undergraduate age people I'm working with right now also um, relate very well to the idea of trauma and and trauma narratives within a family. Um, One of the, one of the, of Jung's statements, I paraphrase this a little bit, but one of the statements that, uh, that gets their attention in a very big way is that the biggest influence on a child's life is the unlived life of the parent. 
Oh. Now, Freud basically said this too, but and Jung said it a, in a couple of different places. And boy, their stu- the eyes just go, <laughs> they just get really wide. Oh, yeah. That. Well, that would coincide, I'm guessing, with the age of their parents who mm-hmm. are teeing up or in the midst of that midlife crisis, which Jung said is really just facing the fact that you have this unlived life. Yes. And you're either going to choose to live it or not. And in that choice, the second half of your life will be defined. Um, so I can imagine that their eyes flip wide. They do. Yeah, yeah. They really do. Yeah. I, you know, I think about that as well in terms of the internet. And if, you know, how many iterations does a human being have now? You know, like... My parents grew up, you know, my dad's trajectory is that he was going to work at the same job and retire at General Motors in Detroit. And that was that. And my mother was going to be a mom and a housewife and, you know, raise kids. And and then, you know, she was going to have some hobbies and that was that. And of course, you know, life intervenes and, and a different story was written for their lives. But I I sometimes wonder how many how many selves do we get in the tech world? How many comebacks do we get? How, how many, many iterations do we get? <laughs> uh, well, again, I think there is a, a fantasy that you can be anything you want, um, which you know that's a, that's very much a puer fantasy. With without question, um, and I think the internet, uh, mobile digital technology, probably just feeds that fantasy. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You have yeah. to do what's that? What's that old adage? Yeah, yeah. You have to pray and mm-hmm. hope and mm-hmm. tie up your horse. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. There's still work to be done. Don't. There is still there is still work to be done. Yeah, I I've seen still quite a bit of pu'er resistance to grounding yourself in, in, in one life, in, in a real life and facing, facing limitation, which is facing mortality. I think that that is uh, one of, in the spirit of Carl Jung, I think that's one of his deepest wisdoms is that, it's all about experience and life is here to be lived and experienced that that's where our growth comes, not in wondering and, um, and, and thinking cognitively and hoping and that our experience will grow us and teach us and guide us in the direction that we need to go. That it, that if we have software, the soul has a has a, an understanding, a, a need. The self knows what it wants. Self does know what it wants, or um, but then then there is the question of: Are you listening to the self? Are you listening to your soul? Are you observing the 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 uh, soft nudges from your soul, um, or does it take a louder a louder or more forceful message to get through? Um, but I don't want to disparage the role of the imagination in 
I mean, one of the lovely things about the about the puer is that, or the puella is that he or she can imagine many possibilities, and that that's a fabulous thing. Um, and it can be a very nourishing activity. So, one of the I think, and I think this is probably very true, especially for young people, but maybe also for anyone at the at the midlife, you know. What have I not yet lived that my soul is calling me towards? Um, and can I imagine that and how I might go from where I am now towards that? Um, do you do you work with people on this stuff? Do you, you're you're a writer and you teach writing? I do. And yes. I wonder if you ever engage people to in a kind of active imagination sort of way to use their writing to kind of dig, dig a little deeper and pull out the messages that the self would really love to say. Maybe Absolutely. you can get it on a page. How does that go? Um, I do it all the time. I mean, I, one of my favorite tools that uh, Jung called active imagination is indispensable for me when I'm working with authors um, you know, very often in a, a session with an author, um, uh, an image will come in and, um, and I'm, I'll be aware that there's another figure in the room, if you will, uh, who has something to say about what they're writing. Um, the other thing that I ask authors to do is to look at a piece of writing and, and identify the images that are already on the page, in the prose. And the images usually show up in, in metaphors. Sometimes they're cliches, no question about that. But the images are there. They're already on the page. It's a matter of taking them, uh, taking them seriously um, in, a, in a playful way, seeing the life in the images and who wants to come into the writing process. Um, that is just, it's such an exciting way to work with authors. I, I was it. about to say, that sounds fascinating. Uh, it's great. <laughs> and I love, I love my work with authors. You know, yeah. I can tell you love your work. It, you. it just shows <laughs> on you. And I knew that that would be the case if we brought you on to Jungian Anthology and talked about these issues of, you know, people call it sometimes the post-human age. And I don't know that I'm really post-human yet. I think I'm really wanting to keep my humanity, even though I, I, <laughs> I love technology and I love to study the digital culture. So I want to thank you, Elizabeth Nelson, for you know sharing your time with us and, and all of your wisdom that you've collected over these years of you know, being in the tech world and also being in the world in the realm of uh, the theories of Carl Jung. You're very welcome. It's been a delightful conversation, Patricia. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about training programs, archives, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, jungchicago.org. Thank you to our 2021 donors who gave at the contributing member level or above. The Arlene M. Feiner Trust, Barbara Anan, Arlo and Rena Kampan, Judith Cooper, Kevin Davis, George J. Didier, Mary Doherty, Carl and Patricia Greer, Ryan Mayer, 
Patricia Martin, Boris Matthews, Sue Rosenthal, Diane Sherwood, Debbie Stutzman, Lawrence Chad Tingley, Alexander Wayne and Lynn Kopp, Gerald Weiner, and Ellen Young. You can also become a supporter of this podcast by visiting our website, newchicago.org. Thanks.